This is the visible hand. My name is Jordi Blanes y Vidal. My guest today is Michael Best, who is an assistant professor in economics at Columbia University. Today we are going to talk about his paper, Individuals and Organizations as Sources of State Effectiveness, which is joined with Jonas Jort and David Sakonji. The paper was published in the American Economic Review in 2023. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Jordi. So what is state effectiveness? That's a really good question. It's something that actually has a very floppy, loose definition, and lots of people disagree about exactly what it is. So I guess I can tell you how I try and think about it, and then we can discuss whether you agree that's a good way of defining it. Uh, loosely speaking, I think of the state, state effectiveness as sort of the mapping between the way that a policy is written down, probably as a law or as a regulation, and what actually ends up happening on the ground. You know, there's this entire process of a bureaucracy taking a policy as written down by policymakers and politicians and transforming it into the actual actions and rules that people need to follow uh, when they're carrying out their economic activities. And so the, sort of the gap between the intentions of the policymakers and what actually ends up happening, the, the, the way that citizens interact with the government, I think of as state effect. So if we were talking about uh, private firms, and we were um, maybe controlling for things like industry fixed effects or whatever, we could compute, I don't know, doing the type of like a bells and whistles that economists do, measures of productivity of firms, uh, of a, uh, operating productivity of firms and so on. Or maybe you could construct profit measures, as I said, con controlling for the industry, whatever. Obviously, a state is not a profit maximizing entity, but a state has a set of objectives, whatever they are, the ability to carry out these objectives will be the, you know, the governmental counterpart of the ability of a firm to uh, carry out its own objective, which is to make money. I think that's a beautiful analogy. Yes, absolutely. Of course, in the public sector, this gets more complicated. What the objectives are is more difficult to pin down. Um, and what exactly the inputs are is also more difficult to pin down, but that's a, that's a beautiful analogy. It's sort of the, the uh, ability of the government to transform its intentions into realities on the ground. So the paper is called Individuals and Organizations as Sources of State Effectiveness. And if, if I didn't know anything else about the paper, I might wonder, well, what is the alternative? I mean, what else other than individuals and organizations can be the sources of state effectiveness, right? Because if a state is also like a, a big organization and well, the organization is made out of people, so it has to be either individual people or maybe teams of people, which is what you mean here by organizations, which is like a subset of the state that are the ones that have human capital or maybe capabilities in terms of the different uh, complementarities between the, the individuals and so on, right? So I guess that that uh, I, an objective here in the paper is maybe to disentangle the, maybe the relative effects of individuals versus organizations, or maybe to show that both of them matter, or or to show that they matter as opposed to anything else. Exactly. So I think I think when I was uh, starting out on this project, one of the things that I had in mind was that what, my background is largely in public finance. 
And a lot of the time in public finance, we think about the design of policies. So we think about a lot, you know, how should we set marginal tax rates in an income tax schedule? Or how should we design unemployment insurance benefits? And there really what we're trying to think about is how can we use economic tools to think about the design of policies as written down, like the law that we're going to write down, the income tax law, the regulations that the IRS is going to issue. But then there's this gap between what happens as written down and what actually happens on the ground. And so, you know, there is a lot of work in public finance on things like tax evasion that talks about tax administration and how it's important to um, uh, set the tax administration up in ways that minimize opportunities for tax evasion. But by and large, you know, when we teach graduate PF, we focus mostly on thinking about how to set policies. There is this uh, a little bit of a, a lack of attention to how you actually take policies and make them into reality. Now, you know, in other parts of the of the discipline, you know, there's a whole uh, field of organizational economics which takes these issues much more seriously. And so, we wanted to try and bring these two things together and think through carefully what exactly is it that drives the ability of the state to actually deliver on the policies that they that they write down. And we do see lots of heterogeneity, you know, even within the setting that we're studying, there's lots of places that do really, really well at delivering on the objectives of the policy and other places that do much, much uh, less well. And so we wanted to try and decompose this into how much of this is coming from differences in who the people are who are doing this and how much of this is coming from differences in the sort of organizational uh, environment that they live in, things like management uh, of the organizations that they work for, and then how much we still can't explain that could be driven by other things, uh, things that maybe come from the policy design uh, that comes from the federal level in our setting. So we have done a pretty good job so far in keeping the dis the discussion abstract um uh, you know uh, talking about the broad themes of what um this paper is about in terms of the literature that the literature that it links and so on but the paper in terms of the the specifics is actually about public procurement in russia can you tell me you know how that works who is involved what Uh, individuals are involved, what organizations are involved, what the rules are, and so on. Yes. So uh, when I present this paper, I often tell people, you know, the first thing I want you to do is sort of forget all of the things you've been reading about Russia in the news. This is, uh, we're using Russia as a laboratory here for something that's uh, very different. Um, and similarly, you know, uh, when I tell people that this is a paper about public procurement, sometimes you see people's eyes glaze over and they go, oh my God, public procurement, that's so dry. Um, however, I do think it's incredibly interesting for two big reasons. Number one is that it's a very core function of the state. So it's something like 12% of GDP on average is what governments spend on doing public procurement. So it's just an extremely important part of what it is that governments do around the world. And so that means that, you know, even if we can understand how to make this just a little tiny bit more effective, the scope for making enormous savings is, is huge. The second thing that's really interesting uh, about public procurement is that it's something that happens throughout the government. It's something you know, every agency needs to procure inputs in order to deliver the services that they have to deliver. And so it's something that you see being done everywhere throughout the government. And that sort of brings me to Russia as a good case study for this. You know, Russia is an enormous and extremely heterogeneous country. And so it's a wonderful laboratory for thinking about things like state capacity because you have parts of the government that have extremely high state capacity and uh, parts of the government that have much lower state capacity. It's also a very, very decentralized government, and we take advantage of this in our analysis. 
So each individual agency has independent legal authority to buy the inputs that they need to buy in order to deliver the services that they're uh, ordered to deliver. And the procurement officers, the individuals who we're going to be studying, they're hired very much like they would be in the private sector. So in many countries, you think of the civil service as something that's very, very centralized. You know, everyone sits for an exam, for example, at a certain point in the year. And then the people who do really well in the exam get posted to various places uh, as, as part of a, a, a central planning process of where the civil servants will be working. That's not how it works for procurement officers in Russia. If you as a, a, a state entity want to hire a procurement officer, you post a job ad just like you would in the private sector. You, you go to the analog of monthly.com, you put up the ad, you say what background people need to have, and then you interview them and you hire them just as you would in the private sector. And so that makes it a very nice laboratory for us for studying these, these sort of uh, larger questions about state capacity and where it comes from. And the organizations that we're studying, those we should think of those as the end users. So this can be you know, a clinic that needs to buy pharmaceuticals. These can be a school that needs to buy stationery. These can be a ministry that needs to buy uh, furniture. Those Each of the individual organizations that makes up the state um, are the, the, the organizations that we're going to think about studying. And it is the organizations that hire the public procurement officers? Absolutely. So it's... So that sounds a little bit um, burdensome, right? If if I am like a, a small school in a village in rural Siberia, and I want to get a couple of chairs, in addition to worrying about buying the chairs, now I have to go to the labor market and hire a public procurement officer that is going to help me set up the auction. Can I not just say to the local regional government, I need some chairs, can you please take care of it? That's a complicated question because the rules changed a little bit near the end of our data. Um, however, by and large, no, um, you are in charge of doing your own procurement. Sometimes you don't need to have a specialist procurement officer who does this. So for example, if you're a very small school in a very rural area, it can be the principal of the school who signs all of the documents and sits, uh, sits on the committee that does the procurement. And then there does exist the possibility for groups of organizations to pool together and uh, buy things together if they want to. There are rules about exactly when they're allowed to do this and who they're allowed to partner with. But what there isn't is like a central procurement office that sits in you know, the regional capitals and says, okay, from now on, everybody who wants pencils, here's the catalog of pencils. You tell me how many pencils you need, we'll deliver them to you. That type of framework contract doesn't exist during our study period. Continuing with the example of the um, ruler school needing uh, 20 chairs, can you walk me through chronologically through the actual process? So now I have a procurement officer. What do I do? Okay, the fun micromasters in public procurement in Russia. So you have to uh, write down exactly what it means to buy 20 chairs. So you have to describe the chairs, you have to describe the delivery conditions, and you have to describe uh, the terms of the contract. And then you put out, you publish this document on a central online portal. And this is going to then be our data source. So, so I, I publish this or the procurement officer publishes this? The procurement officer. Okay, so I give that information to the procurement officer. And the procurement officer is the one who contacts the website. 
Exactly. They're in charge of making sure that the document satisfies all the legal requirements. Their name is on the document and it says, you know, for any bidder or potential supplier who has any questions, contact this person. That's the procurement officer. But of course, the specifications have to be developed in coordination with the end user organization to make sure that it satisfies the needs of the end user organization. You would then publish this document on this online portal. And that would specify what conditions need to be satisfied by the product and by any firm that wants to participate in the auction. We're going to restrict our study to products that are purchased through online auctions, which accounts for more than half of public procurements. So it's not a particularly severe restriction. The document is going to then say, okay, anybody who wants to bid, you have to be pre-approved to participate in the auction. And you submit as a bidder, you submit your documents to the platform. The platform is going to separate the part of your submission that's to do with qualifying yourself as a bidder and the part of the document that is uh, describing what product you're offering to supply. And uh, then strip all of the identifying information from those documents and pass them to the, the procurement officers to prevent collusion. And then it's going to say, okay, the auction is going to happen on Thursday at 10 o'clock. Log into the website on Thursday at 10 o'clock. Before the auction happens, the procurement committee, which the procurement officer sits on, uh, has to then say, okay, these are the people who um, are allowed to bid for uh, the, this product. You hold the auction. The auction is in standards uh, descending auction. We keep going until nobody wants to beat the current winning bid. And then that declares the auction winner. Mm -hmm. After the auction is over, then the committee gets to see the documents that uh, describe the, the providers and make sure that they do actually satisfy all the eligibility requirements. Again, this is uh, set up in a way that's trying to prevent uh, collusion between the bidders and the, and the procurement officers. Is there uh, anything preventing my cousin from submitting a bid and independently coming to my house and saying, you know, I, I have submitted this bid um, and I have delivered these documents. Can you please make sure that uh, every other potential competitor is disqualified on spurious basis? That would be quite hard. Um, nothing is impossible where there's a will, there's a way. Uh, but it would be quite hard because uh, the procurement officer doesn't know who is who during the auction and the procurement officer hasn't seen yet all of the uh, documents with which they could potentially disqualify a bidder. And they've already pre-committed to under what conditions they would disqualify a bidder. So it's quite hard for them to manipulate exactly who wins the auction. Now, of course, there's always cases where this, where, where people find a, a way to do this. Um, nothing is completely impossible and we can't rule it out. And indeed, that's going to be sort of buried inside our measure of the effectiveness of the individuals and organizations doing the procurement. Because if we see that showing up as higher prices, that's going to be uh, part of our measure. So a lot, a lot of the um, details of the paper are going to rely on the fact that there is mobility of procurement officers across organizations. Um, so again, continuing with the example of that rural uh, school, I need 20 chairs. First, I need to find a, procure, uh, a procurement officer and the procurement officer is going to take care of my auction. But then that procurement officer is sitting maybe somewhere in St. Petersburg and doing everything online. And then maybe some other school somewhere else in the other part of the country 
is going to hire the procurement officer for something else. That's the way that the system works. I think it, so. Siberians and Petersburg are really, really far from each other. So that distance of a connection would be very, very unlikely. But, um, but online, I, I, I put them that far apart to emphasize the, the point that there may not be even a physical contact between them or or there needs to be a physical contact, oh, face-to-face face, face contact. You know, I suspect that if we look at how this works today in 2023, there will be a lot of that. Our data that we use goes from 2011 to 2016, so before the pandemic, a long time before the pandemic. I would guess that everybody who works together, all the individuals and all the organizations that work together have met, that have physically met. Um, but you're right that in principle, you could think about this as a um, as a remote relationship because um, because the entire procurement itself happens through the online platform. But something just to repeat to emphasize is that there is going to be mobility of individuals across organizations. Yes, we see tons of mobility. And that's exactly what we're going to use to try and causally identify the impact of the individuals and organizations. So if anything, we see probably more mobility than we see in most private sector data sets. And partly that's because individuals can work in parallel for multiple organizations at the same time. So we see lots of individuals who work for multiple organizations, and we see lots of organizations who work with multiple individuals. And that type of mobility is what we're going to use to try and separate out the impact that the individual himself or herself is having on the prices that are achieved from the impact that the organization who's you know, generating the, the demand for these uh, products is having on the end price that's achieved. So, so we, we, can go, we will go back later to the test of this or the test of that, you know, but the way, the way that you're describing the system to me, it will seem that a, a very important source of the effectiveness, not of the state, but of an organization, will be the ability to find the right individual to run my auction. Oh, yes, absolutely. So yeah, as you mentioned, you know, we have a bunch of tests in the in the paper for exactly what we need to be true about that matching process for it to generate these causal impacts. Um, and so it is definitely true that we see that there's a positive correlation between the effectiveness of the organization and the effectiveness of the individuals that they hire to do their procurement for them. Um, that's not in itself a threat to our identification strategy. Really, what we need is that the trends over time in that effectiveness are not uh, the reason that people are matching uh, with each other. They can be matching on the levels, so that's fine. Um, and so we do see this in the data. Places, you know, organizations that are good at procurement find people who are good at procurement, and that's part of uh, the, the decomposition that we're going to then do of the, the effectiveness of procurement. So tell me now about the preferences for domestically manufactured goods. What is that? So this is this. It's actually a very common type of procurement policy, and we're going to use it for something uh, a little bit different than other papers have. We're going to use it to try and think about whether. The fact that you have some places with highly capable bureaucrats and some places with less capable bureaucrats has implications for the way that you want to design uh, policies. But let me tell you a little bit about the specifics of this policy. So the way that this works is that all of these products are being purchased through online auctions. And the government wanted to find a way to stimulate local manufacturing. And so what they did is they said, well, if you run an auction and the winner is offering to supply foreign-made goods, the winner will only receive 85% of the final bid as the uh, as their uh, uh, payment. 
why or if the winner of the auction is offering to supply locally manufactured goods, they get the full 100% of the final bid. So there's this 15% wedge, this 15% preference in favor of locally manufactured goods. And so this is a policy that's applied across the entire government, but it's then going to be implemented by people who have very different levels of capacity to implement policy in general. And so we're going to look for whether the introduction of this type of a policy has different effects when it's implemented by a highly capable bureaucrat versus when it's implemented by a less capable bureaucrat. Where does the data come from? So our data is actually publicly available. There's a website that you can go to right now. And on that website, you can browse through the entire life cycle of any public procurement process in Russia. And so I have to give uh, credit to my co-author, David, here. Uh, for figuring out that this data was out there and just how rich it all is, because you really do see the entire life cycle from the initial tender documents all the way through the contracts and the deliveries and the payments. It's it's really quite an amazing uh, website. And so um, that was our primary data source. Uh, we we built a scraper to download all the data and, and organize it all nicely for us to be able to use for our analysis. So, if, so one important thing here is that because your dependent variable is going to be the price paid for the auction, where a lower price means that the process was run better because um, the good is being obtained uh, more cheaply by the state. But important here is that you are able to uh, compare between goods that are identical or at least comparable. The Russian state being so big, I presume that the goods that it is procuring are also very different. Uh, how do you ensure this homogeneity within certain subsets? Yes, yeah, so this was a huge part of the sort of the lift, the data work in this project. Um, so we did a bunch of things here to try and make sure that when I say that, you know, Jordi did a better job than Michael did of public procurement, and I do that by comparing the prices that we're achieving, that we're really sure that it is the case that you're doing better. So we did a first cut at this was to say, look, for some of the things that the government buys, it's going to be hopeless to make comparisons across people buying the same thing. Think of like bridges. No two bridges are the same. There's just no way that I can say that if you paid less for the bridge than I did, that you're doing better than I am. So we threw away construction contracts and we throw away service contracts for exactly the same reason. And we focus on off the shelf, very homogeneous uh, 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 products. And then for those, we're going to try and construct as fine a possible categorization of what people are buying so that we can make comparisons within products. And to do this, we use the text of the contracts that get signed at the end of the auction. And in those contracts, they describe, this is the product that we have just bought. And so we use that, the, the, we scrape that text and use some natural language processing tools to classify all of those texts into um, product uh, categories, which are sort of roughly the width of a 10-digit HS code. And so then we're going to be able to say within those, well, now I see you buying a, uh, you know, a, a, a pencil that has a HB lead of 0.5 millimeters um, that's got these uh, specifications. And now I can say that if you paid less for it than I did, then you did better. So, so I can see that the description may get you the goods being um, identical or is very comparable in an abstract sense. But given that some of the effects that you're interested in have to do with the presence of certain organizations, 
let me go back to the example, the running example that we're having throughout of the ruler school uh, in Siberia. You know, that rural school is going to pay a lot for its chairs just because, you know, delivering the chairs, you know, to such a remote area is just very expensive. Maybe there are very few local providers, you know, like, and then you will find that after you take out the effect of the public uh, procurement offices that move in and out, it seems that this organization is really bad, but it's just that it's in a terrible spot. Whereas something else in Moscow you know, maybe the local market is enormous, you know, they are around the corner and so on. That obviously, even with all this uh, text analysis and all that, you're not going to take out, correct? Absolutely. absolutely. That's one of the things um, that we're not able to fully control for. So I'll tell you exactly how we did this. We know when things are delivered. So trends over time in prices, I think we've taken care of as much as is possible. But things to do with differences in transportation costs like that, um, we can control for the region in which stuff is bought. So there are, there are about 88 regions in Russia. And so we control for those. That's still a big area in a lot of places. And so those differences in transportation costs are going to show up as part of the organization effects that we're studying. And so um, that means that, you know, you might think that, well, the individual effects are going to be more interesting to study because those cannot be driven by these differences in transportation costs because we're now holding fixed which organization things need to be delivered to and looking at differences across the people who work at those organizations. Um, and then in part of the paper, we try and explore a little bit what predicts all of these differences across uh, organizations and differences across individuals. Um, and so there, some of the geographic stuff does show up, um, but it's not, it doesn't come anywhere close to explaining all of it. There's still uh, some of it left. Tell me now about the quality factors of the procurement process. So the main dependent variable is going to be prices, but you have other quality dependent variable. What is that? Yeah, this goes back a little bit to what we were talking about at the beginning where we said, you know, studying the public sector is going to be very difficult because it has multiple objectives. And you know, part of the appeal of studying public procurement, particularly public procurement of standardized goods, is that the price is really the main factor that the government cares about. Indeed, if you read the procurement law, that's how it's written. It says, you know, the objective of public procurement is to get low prices uh, um, and get good value for money for the things that the government has to buy. But even in this case, you might worry that if I say that, you know, you paid less for a pencil than I did, and therefore you did better, even with the best will in the world of our like, uh, using the contract data to, to say exactly what pencil you bought, you might have bought a slightly lower quality pencil than we did. Or perhaps more importantly, your pencil may be delivered late or it may involve a payment above what the contracted amount was because the contract was renegotiated or something uh, along those lines. And so we wanted to worry about these sort of execution quality differences across individuals and across organizations to make sure that when we say that one person is doing better than another because of the prices, that's not coming at the expense of these execution quality measures. And so what we did is we uh, gathered up as much data as we can from the procurement system, things like cost overruns and things like delivery delays, those kinds of things sit inside the system as well. And then uh, we also complemented this with some data from uh, local NGOs that go through exactly the same website that we do. And they look for things that are uh, sort of smoking guns of problems with, uh, with procurement. So they look for, uh, for example, for things like uh, uh, suppliers who are on various blacklists participating in procurement 
or for sometimes there are products that are purchased that are actually not legally allowed to be sold in Russia because they're uh, forbidden for whatever reason. And so they, this, these NGOs, they do fantastic work. They go through these, these documents and look for these types of problems. And so with their data, we're able to flag some other quality problems uh, in the data as well. And with those, we can construct an index of the quality of the execution of the, of the contract. And then we can do basically the same exercise that we do for prices, but now for this quality measure and see whether it looks like the people who are doing really well on prices do really well or not very well on quality to make sure, uh, to see how those two things go together. Or whether there's a trade-off, that's it. So Exante, you might've thought that there, you know, there's lots of literature on these kinds of things on these cost quality trade-offs. Uh, so you might've thought that the people who are gonna get you low prices are gonna do that precisely by cutting quality. So you are going to uh, end up running like a, an AKM model, uh, which is essentially like a regression with fixed effects. Okay, I, I don't know why it's called, a, you know, obviously I'm sure that it was a great contribution, et cetera, but you know, the name obscures more than it reveals because it's just a regression with fixed effects, at least in its basic, in its basic form. Afterwards, you can worry about changes, variations that allow to, to control for different uh, concerns and so on. But before you do that, you have a, a theory, a simple theory model, um, why do you need that? What are the main um, ingredients and what are the main predictions that come from this model? Yeah, the model there is, it's a good question. It's at various points, we considered removing the model because we were worried that it didn't add enough uh, to the paper. But I think it's actually quite nice in the sense that it does a couple of uh, useful things. One is that it shows a particular case in which we can derive the estimating equation that we use in empirical work from sort of, uh, first principles from the theory. And the second is that in the model, there's a very particular mechanism that generates these differences in prices as a function of differences in state capacity. Um, and so it sort of helps to clarify at least one interpretation of what we're seeing in the empirical part of the, uh, of the project. And so in the model, we take a very uh, standard uh, auction model and we add to it uh, a couple of important ingredients. The first one is that we add an endogenous decision by the suppliers about whether or not to participate in any given public procurement. This is motivated in large part by the data. We do see a lot of um, auctions in the data where there's only one person who applies to, to supply the good. Uh, and then we see some auctions where there's dozens of people participating. And so that there's a lot of variation in how many people participate across these auctions. And that's very correlated with the outcomes of the auctions, of course. And so we wanted that to be a, a key margin in the model. And then in the model, we add a, a way that we think about what the state capacity that the individuals and organizations have is. And really what it does is it affects the, the auction in two ways. One is that uh, individuals and organizations with high levels of state capacity make it easy for suppliers to participate in the auctions. So we can think of doing this by, for example, uh, setting a low deposit amount. In order to participate in one of these auctions, you have to post a bond as a deposit on the, on the final contract. And if you set the size of that bond really, really high, you're going to screen out lots of smaller, more liquidity-constrained suppliers. And the second mechanism that sits in the model is that the actual delivery costs of, of satisfying the contract are going to depend on the capacity of the individuals and organizations. And here, what we're trying to capture is differences in the ways that the procurement officers and the organizations specify exactly what the thing is that they're trying to buy. 
you know, an extreme example is let's take our, our, our school that we've been talking about before. Imagine the school is trying to buy desks and they say, well, the desks need to be purple and they need to be triangular and they need to have brass casters on the bottom. You're going to find out very quickly that very, very few people can actually do that for you. And that's going to raise the cost of procurement. Or they might say, well, the thing needs to be delivered at 5 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Um, and that's going to raise the cost of uh, satisfying the contract. And so both of those mechanisms sit inside the model. And those are the things that drive differences uh, across uh, across buyers in the final prices that they end up paying. And the predictions? Uh, so the first part of that model then delivers these predictions that uh, individuals and organizations who uh, create more obstacles for people to participate and make the delivery uh, conditions more onerous are then going to be the people who have fewer people participate in their auctions and end up paying higher prices. Because then, if I am the only firm in the auction, I obviously will not decrease my price at all. I will go for whatever it is that the organization can potentially pay. Absolutely. You know, so the organizations have to specify a reservation price. And if there's only one bidder who's qualified, then that's the contract price as well. It only goes down if there actually is an auction. And then in the second part of the model, we say, let's take this simple setup and put bid preferences into this uh, model to see what we expect to happen when you create this wedge between local and foreign bidders and how that depends on the capacity of the implementing uh, procurement officers. And so there we, we get some uh, uh, slightly more complicated predictions, but they're consistent with what we see in the data. So there what we see is kind of what you would expect when there's a very high capacity bureaucrat. When there's a high capacity bureaucrat at baseline, everything is kind of running very smoothly. Participation costs are very low. Everyone wants to participate in those auctions. And then by policy, you create this 15% wedge between foreign and local suppliers. And then, of course, some of the foreign suppliers want, don't want to participate anymore. And they have to change the way that they bid during these auctions, and that's going to reduce participation and drive up prices. On the other hand, when you have auctions that are being run by very low-capacity bureaucrats, those bureaucrats are effectively uh, pushing people out of their auctions at baseline. Very few people want to participate in those auctions because it's so difficult uh, to, to, to participate. And so for those guys, when you introduce this 15% wedge, that actually acts as a subsidy for the local bidders who were discouraged from participating at baseline. And you can get effects where that subsidy is enough to give them a fighting chance of beating these very competitive foreign bidders. And so they start to participate a lot more, so much so that they actually drive down the equilibrium prices in the auction. So I'm going now to interrogate a couple of the um, uh, assumptions that you have in this very simple model and they let me know whether my interpretation is correct or not and if it is whether it is at all relevant or not for what you're trying to do so uh, the first one is that you have obviously here individuals and organizations and they affect the auction by affecting these two costs that you were describing earlier so the the first one is the cost of participating in the procurement process. You mentioned there as an example, the size of the deposit that is required. If I see they are very high, you know, um, then I'm discouraging and so on. The second is the fulfillment cost. If I ask for a purple chair, then very few people can supply that, et cetera, et cetera. So this is fine. But it will seem to me, at least from the way that you are describing this cost that 
the role of individuals and organizations on these two costs is not a priori, uh, a priori uh, identical. That is, to me, it will seem that it will be the organizations that are the ones that should be affecting the fulfillment cost more, uh, and it should be the individuals, the ones that are uh, affecting the cost of participating in the procurement process more. I'm not so sure about the second, but definitely the first one. A procurement officer is not going to tell to a school, you know, asking for proper chairs is a stupid thing. You should ask for chairs that have any potential color, right? Because what does she know, you know, about the needs of the organization, right? I am saying this in case we find later on that empirically the effect is the same. Like, you know, I can see that a priori you want to say, well, I don't know, I'm agnostic about this, etc. But, but I think that at least from your description, it will be surprising if we find that on in on the side of the fulfillment cost, the effect of both types of uh, agencies, broadly speaking, identical, right? Because they wouldn't seem to be. The the other uh, query that I had with respect to this is is like you mentioned as a as a cost of participating in the procurement process, uh, the deposit required. And I can see there how asking for a very high deposit is discouraging bidders, and I don't see any big advantage to it. But another example that you give is the time granted to prepare the bids. Now there, I can see a trade-off because it could be, again, continuing with our long-running example, that the school may need the chairs for the 1st of September, because that's when the school year is starting. And the procurement officer can accommodate that more or less. And there is a trade-off there between getting the chairs more quickly and having to pay a bit more for the chairs, right? So that's a decision. And that's something that may be very from organization to organization. It may vary from officer to officer, but it's not, it's not like an unequivocal cost. It's something that can have a positive side as well. I don't know if you want to mention on either of these two things that maybe they're not uh, important. No, that's super interesting. Let me take them in order. So the the issue about the individuals versus the organizations, um, I think that's a great point. And so in the model, what matters is the sum of the two. And so the model itself doesn't have predictions uh, uh, for uh, whether the individuals or the organizations are going to matter more for either of two types. However, what we can do is once we have estimates of the size of all of these things for each individual and each organization, we can try and correlate them with things that we see in the data. Um, and so we, we do see differences between what predicts the individual effects and what predicts the organization effects. We do see, as you said, that things to do with the procedure matter much more for trying to predict the individual effects, um, which is kind of interesting. The second thing there is that the model does have a, a prediction. You know, it's it's perhaps uh, asking a little bit too much of the model. But when we study the impact of introducing bid preferences, there the two types of costs matter in different ways. The bid, it's the participation costs that matter much more for the predictions about how the bid preferences are going to change things much more than the fulfillment costs. And there, when we look at the heterogeneity of the effect of actually doing this in the data, we do see much stronger heterogeneity by the quality of the individual than the quality of the organization. And so that's consistent 
with the individuals mattering much more for the participation costs and the organizations mattering more for the fulfillment costs. Tell me now about the empirical strategy. You have a, a sample of auctions, right? So an, an observation in your data set is going to be an auction. Um, Actually, an, an observation in our data is going to be an item. Sometimes the items are bundled in, in particular auctions. Okay. So you can have okay. a single like auction. A subset, with, a subset of an auction. That's okay. um, but it's not, uh, sorry, one thing to clarify is that they're not, um, uh, you know, the, the way the auction happens is you go first item one, then item two, then item three. So they, they are separate. Uh, and then with the AKM, which we should say is Abode, Karamarts, and Margolis, um, it's essentially, you know, a regression in which we have a dependent variable and then a bunch of fixed effects um, of different levels on the right-hand side, right? And the, the objective Absolutely. is to see, you know, to estimate these fixed effects. Absolutely. So that this is where we rely very heavily on the mobility of the individuals across organizations and organizations across individuals. So effectively, the regression that we're going to run is just, just quote unquote, it's an LLS regression. You know, we have about 16 million uh, purchases, and then we're going to have uh, dummies for each of the individuals, dummies for each of the organizations, and then contr controls for exactly what's being purchased, controls for when it's being purchased, and controls for the overall size of the, the auctions that are, that are going on. Um, and then we run OLS to get estimates of those uh, fixed effects. Now, ultimately, what we're uh, interested in is trying to decompose the variance prices and decompose it into the part that comes from individuals, the part that comes from organizations, and then the rest of the stuff that comes from what's being purchased, when it's being purchased, et cetera. And so we want to be very careful here that when we're, um, that when we're doing this, we, we take care of the fact that we have a finite sample on each of the individuals and each of the organizations. And so we're going to use, we use a, a range of techniques to try and shrink all of the individual and organization effects to, to account for that sampling error. But when so I want to go back to the shrinkage um, later on, but before that, let me, let me mention on something that is like at the core of these type of models, which is that you, one can only estimate these effects within what is called the connected set. Okay. So. So imagine that we have a, on one side of the country, two organizations and uh, two officers, and on the other side of the country, again, two organizations and two officers, and they switch within the two sides, right? We can say that officer A1 is better or worse than officer A2, but we cannot say whether officer A1 is better or worse than officer B2 or B1, who are on the other Absolutely. side, because they never were, you know, in a in an organization that had somebody from the other group uh, as well. So that is typically a problem. Uh, that is sometimes not a problem for some type of uh, regressions of this type because the connected set includes maybe like ninety percent of of the uh, individuals or, or workers or managers, depending on you know the specific of the paper that is using this type of technique. Here you have. 616 sets, but you have some type of technique to claim that you can still calculate the variance of these effects even after having all this. And I am wondering how can this be? Because if you imagine that you found that that the A1 and A B and A and A2 are identical to each other, 
and uh, B1 and B2 are identical to each other. So the effects are zero, <laughs> essentially, right? It could still be that the difference across groups are absolutely massive, you know, or the other way around. Like I'm, if you could give me an intuition of, as to how this is possible to do, how you have solved this problem that has evaded so many other people. Yeah, I think so. First, let me tell you why I think this happens in our setting more than in others. So, you know, the canonical setting for using these types of estimators is that you have firms and you have workers, and then you have workers who are moving around between the firms. And in that type of uh, setting, you typically connect about 90% of the firms. Now that's happening because the outcome that you're studying is wages and you have wages for everyone. So if the connection is made by the cleaner moving from one office to another or by the CEO moving from one corporation to another, it doesn't matter. They both have wages and so you can connect people like that. In our setting, it's a little bit different. We're studying people who are all doing exactly the same task. So it's as if we were taking a single occupation and saying, how many firms does that connect? And so um, that's, that's why I think we have so many more connected sets. But I think it's also an advantage of our of our outcome measure that we're able to study people who we're really sure are doing exactly the same task. Now, how do we solve this problem? Well, we scratched our heads for a very, very long time about this. Um, and ultimately, what it comes down to is um, we cannot tell you the full variation uh, that's coming from the individuals in the organizations, but we can give you a lower bound on it. And so your example is perfect. So imagine that there are two connected sets. Within each of those connected sets, everyone is very similar, and we're going to get a very small number, but they can be drastically different from each other. And so if you think of, say, you know, the, the law of total variance, you can decompose any variance into the sum of a bunch of conditional variances. And so we can estimate all of those conditional variances within each of the connected sets. And then there's going to be the part that comes from the across-connected set variance that we can't, uh, we can't compute. If, if I was interested in a single variance, I can see how the lower bound is a very meaningful statistic. Because if you tell me, you know, the variance is at least 15%, well, okay, well, 15% doesn't, that, 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 that's, that's meaningful, that's not small. And if it is 90, well, that's even more meaningful. I don't know that it might be 90, but at least it is 15, that's, a, you know. And now if you tell me, okay, well, my lower bound for the variance of the organizations is 15%, and my lower bound for the variance of the individuals is 30%. Well, now I don't know that 30 is more than 15, right? Because it could be that the 15 is a lower bound, but the actual number is 45, and the 30 yeah. is a lower bound, but the actual number is 31, right? Oh. So comparisons across now becomes become harder. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's totally correct. Um, I think, you know, in our case, we're going to end up finding that it's sort of 20 and 20. Um, and so we've accounted for a big chunk of the variance in prices. Um, so, I, you know, I don't think there's that much buffer for those uh, variances across connected sets to make a huge difference to the number. Um, but absolutely, that's a, that's a limitation of the number. And it's, it's just driven by this lack of connection between the different offices. So tell me now about the measurement error that comes from the low mobility and what the shrinkage does to account for that? Yeah, this is, um, this is something that was sort of a lot of fun to, to code up. But the, the basic problem is just that even though we have 16 million purchases, we're trying to estimate tens of thousands of parameters here. We're trying to estimate a fixed effect for each bureaucrat and a fixed effect for each organization. And there are tons of those. And so there are going to be some individuals and some organizations for whom we don't have that many observations. 
And then we make a sample restriction to make sure we have at least a few observations for everybody, but we're never going to be completely confident that, we, um, that we've got a, a, an estimate for each uh, individual that has converged um, to, to the correct answer. And so we want to take this seriously because if you think about what we're trying to do here, we're trying to estimate a decomposition of a variance and part of the variance of our estimated fixed effects is this estimation error that comes from the finiteness of the sample for each of the bureaucrats. And so we don't want to attribute that to the actual underlying variances of the bureaucrats and organizations. And so what do we do? Well, uh, we've got a couple of uh, different ways that we try to attack this. Uh, one way we can do this is we can uh, do something very uh, sort of agnostic here. We can say, let's uh, split the sample in half randomly, and then we can estimate for each bureaucrat and each organization an effect in one half of the data and an effect in the other half of the data. Now, both of those are going to be noisy estimates, but those uh, the, the noise in those estimates should be independent of each other because we split the sample in half randomly. And so then if we correlate those uh, with each other, we can get an estimate of the variance of the true effects that, that wipes out a bunch of that. And so we do that, and that does reduce quite a lot. The, not that much. It reduces a bunch of the, um, the estimates that we get. Something else that you can do that uh, um, puts a little bit more structure on the problem is you can uh, think about doing a, a shrinkage estimator. This is something that's, for example, very common in the literature that tries to estimate the value added of features. And here we're going to try and do this for two sets of fixed effects. So we extend the, the basic idea of doing that uh, for, for teachers to a setting in which you have two dimensions of fixed effects. Um, and so there you can say, well, I, I, I can form a prediction about what it is that's the part of this variation that comes from the measurement error and the part of this error that comes from the true signal variance and shrink all of the estimates towards the global mean in a way that uh, sort of trades off the, the bias and the variance that you're, that you're um, introducing there. And so we do that, and that's our most preferred way of, of estimating the real variances of the bureaucrat and organization effects. Oh, it has an extra advantage, which, I, which is that um, one of the things that this literature has pointed out is that when you're estimating both individual and organization effects, the measurement error in those is going to be correlated negatively with each other. So one simple way of thinking about this is, you know, imagine I see uh, an individual and an organization that very often work with each other, um, but sometimes each of them works with someone else. Then if they very often work with each other, then I'm going to get a pretty good estimate of the sum of the two effects. But if I overestimated the individual effect by just a little bit, then mechanically I have to have underestimated the other one by, uh, by the same amount. And so that generates this false artificial negative correlation between the individuals and the organizations. And our shrinkage measure does, uh, our two-dimensional shrinkage approach does a pretty good job actually of correcting for that and, uh, and shows that there is actually a positive correlation between the individuals and the organizations in our data. I mean, it could be, let me repeat the problem here and see whether I understood it. You said an individual organization work a lot with each other, so we can establish how much they do when they are together. But then the individual works with another organization just for a single, for a single auction, yes, let's just say, uh, you know, in the extreme. And something happens in that auction idiosyncratically that means that the outcome is terrible. So that means that now suddenly that, um, that individual is going to have a very negative effect. Uh, I mean, very bad effect here. Obviously, prices are negative. Ne never mind. Very bad effect. 
which means that uh, the organization that works with that individual most of the time has to have a very positive effect to compensate for the sum, right? You say that, oh, after we uh, use our, our shrinkets, uh, a correction and this and that, uh, we find that the correlation is actually positive. Now, between the organization effects and the individual effects, this seems to me a little bit like a method that is, you know, whose success is defined by something that may or may not be true, right? Like what happens if the true correlation is negative? That, that's always possible, right? Yeah, there is yeah. nothing, you know, to... So, you know, a method that in some sense, like you keep correcting until somehow you find evidence that this putative measurement error has disappeared. Seems a little bit of a strange way of defining success, but... I, I don't uh, mean to suggest that that's that's um, uh, that's how we decided that this method was working well. Um, uh, so the problem is is deep, as you said. Like the, there's nothing in the data that tells us that that correlation has to be positive um, or that it has to be negative. Though we have this, uh, we we are able to sort of establish that there must be this mechanical negative correlation that's generated by the estimation error. Um, and so, you know, if you saw that after you did your shrinkage correction, you got an even more negative uh, correlation, then you would know something had gone wrong. Uh, I think the 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 contrast that is uh, perhaps uh, more uh, straightforward is that you know we can do the shrinkage correction to the organization effects, do it separately to the bureaucrat effects, just as you would if you were you know doing teacher value added estimates or something like that. Um, and that's not going to tr even try and take into account that correlation. And so, uh, and when you, we do that, we do see that the, the shrinkage uh, reduces the, the variances, but doesn't do a huge amount to the correlation between the two. However, when we do the two-dimensional shrinkage, which just tries to take the, the vector of bureaucratic and organization effects and shrink it all at the same time, that does take into account all of those, you know, off the diagonal terms in the covariance matrix by, by estimating what they all are to try and account for how correlated all of the estimation error between all the, uh, the different fixed effects is. And when we do that, it does suggest in our data that there is uh, that mechanical negative correlation is there and it's uh, driving the negative correlation between the raw OLS fixed effects. Tell me now about the baseline results, the variance. I think you have already mentioned it. The variance is around 20% uh, or their individuals explain around 20% of their overall variance organizations also around 20% as a lower bound. Exactly. Those are our preferred uh, lower bound estimates. And they're, you know, they're positively correlated with each other. So the sum of the two um, uh, is a bit more than, the, than each of the parts. Um, and that's, you know, explaining the variance of the prices after conditioning out exactly what was being purchased and when it was being purchased. So altogether, it's it's sort of about forty percent that comes from uh, the individuals and the organizations, which I think is quite big. I think you know a lot of people would have had the prior that you know these are these are auctions. The law of one price should kind of hold here because we think auctions are a very powerful way of getting uh, people to reveal private information, um, and so the who exactly is running the auction shouldn't have mattered all that much. Um, it turns out that they do matter a lot. What do effective individuals and organizations do differently? Well, I really wish I could tell you much more about that, and I hope to do more work on this in the future. So I can tell you what we learned in this paper. So you know, once we have these estimates of who are the bureaucrats who do well and who are the bureaucrats who don't do well, we can correlate them with all sorts of stuff that we see in our data. Our data is quite rich. 
because we see the entire life cycle of the, of the procurement process. And we can bring in some additional data. We, I mentioned some of the data from the, from the civil society organizations that monitor public procurement. We also can bring in some data on who the suppliers are, who participated, and how they compare to other uh, suppliers that could have participated. Um, and so then we kind of throw the kitchen sink at it. We say, look, let's put on the left-hand side of the regression now these estimated effectiveness measures and see what we have in our data that's able to predict uh, who's better and who's doing worse. And so, you know, the news is kind of mixed. On the positive side, it does look like the features of the way that the procurement process is set up matter. So people, you know, who make it more onerous to participate are the people who end up paying higher prices. People who uh, attract a smaller and less diverse pool of bidders are the people who end up paying higher prices. Um, uh, and that's, you know, that's sort of consistent with the way that we wrote down the model. It's part of the, the reason we wrote the model that way. Uh, on the not so good side is that even with the rich data that we have uh, from the procurement platform and everything that we were able to complement it with, we can't explain all that much of the variance in these individual and organization effects. So I think there's still a big open puzzle there about exactly what it is that makes these guys better and worse. Something that we have uh, forgotten to mention earlier is that you run similar regressions, but now putting quality on the left-hand side. Um, yeah. And then you find that prices, those individuals and those organizations who do well on prices also do well on quality. I think that you mentioned that earlier at some point. Yeah, sorry. We, well, that's uh, important. I think. So we constructed this quality index to try and get at this question, this sort of multitasking question of whether it's the case that the people who achieve low prices are doing so at the expense of, uh, uh, of quality. And so we construct this quality index, and then we essentially repeat the entire exercise. We run our AKM regressions, we do our shrinkage or everything, and we then have a quality uh, effectiveness for each bureaucrat and a quality effectiveness for each organization. And then we can check, like, is it the case that the people who do well by getting low prices also do well by getting good quality on the execution of those contracts? And it turns out that they do. The, the correlation is pretty strong between the two. So the people who do well by paying low prices for the things that they purchase also do well on this quality index. And so that suggests that, you know, uh, in this setting, at least this trade-off between prices and quality is not uh, a first-order policy concern. So if we are thinking about policy, one thing that will come to mind is uh, the, the potential for learning and the, the, in some sense, professionalization or centralization of, of this process, right? Like, like uh, people are different in different ways. Some of them are better than others. I'm not sure there is that much that I can do about that as an employer, as an organization, but what I can decide is, well, do I have high turnover or low turnover, right? Do I hit rid of people immediately or not? Or, you know, is the potential for learning? Is the potential for uh, experience effects, right? Is that something that you thought of uh, checking out whether, you know, like uh, say uh, individuals get better as they run more of these auctions? Yeah, I, we actually at various points thought about trying to do that. Um, so let me tell you two things. So one is that in the exercise we were just talking about where we say, okay, we know who's good and who's bad. Let's see what in the data predicts that. One of the things that we put in there is something that's related to experience, which is just sort of the total number of auctions that I see you do in the data. And that does turn out to be predictive. 
it's not like a mega strong effect, but it is there that the people who do more, who, who have more experience, who do more auctions end up paying the lower both price. future and past. Yeah, we just take the sum. And that's why we didn't do the second thing, which was we thought, you know, there are extensions to these AKM types of models that allow for drift in the effects. So we can see whether people are changing over time. We can estimate, uh, you know, early uh, in an early part of the data, what's your effect? And in a late part of the data, what's your effect? And see if people are getting better over time. The reason we didn't do this is uh, our data only covers six years. And so we didn't have a ton of uh, time variation there to try and exploit. Plus, the, our data starts in 2011 for a very mechanical reason, which is that 2011 is when the online procurement platform came into existence. But that's not the beginning of when procurement happened. And so even someone who we see only doing a few auctions in our data may have tons of experience uh, in the old system. And so we don't have a very good measure of total experience. We don't know, for example, when someone became a procurement officer for the first time. But you have mentioned that this uh, different uh, effectiveness is important for the policy of uh, giving preference to the domestic goods. Um, how do you study that and what do you find? Yeah, so here we, we had this sort of grandiose goal at first where we were like, you know what we'd really love to be able to do is to trace out exactly how would the design of policy depend on the effectiveness of the bureaucrats that are going to be implemented. Now, that's really hard. And so we thought, let's just take a first step in that direction. You know, For it to really matter how you design policy and for it to matter uh, how effective the bureaucrats are when you're doing that, it needs to be the case that the effects of policy changes are different when they're implemented by good bureaucrats versus bad bureaucrats. And so let's check whether that's true. And so here we're going to go to our uh, bid preference policy. Remember, there was this 15% bid preference that favors uh, people who are supplying locally manufactured goods. And that's going to be implemented across the country. And so that means that sometimes it's going to be implemented by a very high effectiveness bureaucrat, and sometimes it's going to be implemented by a low effectiveness bureaucrat. And so we can study that heterogeneity. And so the way that the bid preference policy worked was that each spring, the office of the presidency would publish a list of products, say, these are the products for which bid preferences favoring locally manufactured goods are going to be in effect this year. And that list would remain active until the end of the year. And so on the 31st of December, the list would switch off until the new list was published the following year. And so that creates a very natural setting to try and use a sort of generalized difference in differences strategy where we can compare across products that are on the list versus not on the list and before the list is announced versus while the list is active. And so that's what we do. And so what we find on average, which is kind of surprising to me, was that we don't see very much action. So on average, it doesn't seem like the policy causes prices to be higher or lower. There's a small effect, but it's not very precisely estimated or not precisely enough estimated to, to rule out um, a larger effect. However, that average effect is masking very, very strong heterogeneity by the effectiveness of the bureaucrats and uh, organizations that implement it. And so we see, for example, when you ask a very high effectiveness bureaucrat to implement this type of a bid preference, you see the types of effects that you might expect. This was someone who was running auctions very effectively. Lots of people were participating. And now you've distorted competition in this auction. And so fewer people participate and prices go up. On the other hand, when the person who's being asked to implement this bid preference policy has low effectiveness to start out with, 
that's someone who was already discouraging lots of people from participating because they were making life difficult for the potential suppliers. And so when they implement these bid preference policies, you see the opposite. You're now subsidizing people who didn't really have a chance to participate beforehand. And so they start to participate more often. And sometimes you even see that the effect is so strong that they drive down the equilibrium prices. And so the overall performance gets uh, even better. And so it does seem to matter a lot whether the people implementing the policies are high or low effectiveness. You are reaching this conclusion through a completely different route, but uh, you mentioned Orgicon at the beginning of our conversation. This has a very uh, Orgicon type of flavor. That is, if I, if I have very good workers and I can trust them, then I'm going to delegate to them uh, a lot and they have a lot of freedom to do whatever they want. But if my agents are very bad, then I'm going to put some rules on them, uh, just at least to minimize the potential terrible outcomes or something. So here it, it turns out that the rule is actually also benefiting uh, the auctions when the officers are bad. Exactly. That's exactly the way I, I like to try and think about this. This is sort of a, you know, a third best solution here. Like I have I delegated the implementation of procurement to someone who's not doing a great job of it. And so, and the reason that they're not doing a great job of this is that, you know, sorry, the effect of their uh, inability to do a great work here is that it's restricting participation in the auctions. And so I need some kind of a policy lever that offsets that. And so, for example, subsidizing the entry of certain types of bidders by giving them a bid preference, it turns out in this case, does a, does a, a good job of, uh, of offsetting this lack of capacity. Wonderful. Thank you, Michael, for coming to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Julie. That was fun. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for a past or future episodes that you may enjoy. Introductory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan.